Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. For the next 12 weeks, our discussions will revolve around the topic of housing and house prices with three subtopics. The first will be root causes, followed by an evaluation of policy responses, and finishes with alternatives to current policy and thinking around affordability. For today's program, we were lucky enough to have Angela Lee Stovall on the podcast. Angela is a research and policy manager for Just Fix NYC. Just Fix NYC is a nonprofit that helps ensure livable housing standards in New York by offering renters and tenants resources and data to help navigate the unaffordability crisis in residential housing. In our previous talks, we've mentioned how buying your first house can become increasingly unattainable, but buying a house is only part of the equation. According to the Furman Center, 66% of households in New York City rent. When rent prices skyrocket, millions of people and families have to put more of their paycheck towards housing instead of other necessities. But it goes far beyond housing. Our guest today helps ensure more equitable outcomes that the current market doesn't create. By providing transparency, data, and resources, Just Fix NYC helps ensure renters receive the same rights and dignity that homeowners have. Often, renters find it more challenging to exercise their rights, say, voting, for example, compared to their homeowning counterparts. By better distributing economic power, Just Fix NYC helps to better distribute political power as well. Ms. Stovall began her career as a defense attorney against eviction cases for the New York Legal Assistance Group. Recently, she worked as part of the New York City Commission on Human Rights Income Discrimination Unit as an intervention manager. She has constantly worked towards ending discrimination and reducing inequality, and I can't think of a better guest to have on talking about the unaffordability crisis. Together, we discussed how real estate has become increasingly corporatized, why higher concentrations of land ownership in the hands of fewer people leads to inequality, and how affordable, high-quality rentals can help sustain a healthy, broad-based middle class. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I feel really fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with you at this conference. My name is Angela Stovall, and I'm the housing specialist at Just Fix, focusing mainly on research and policy. Prior to joining Just Fix, I was the intervention manager for the Source of Income Discrimination Unit at the New York City Commission on Human Rights, so mostly focusing on combating housing discrimination based on receipt of housing subsidies and vouchers. I've also worked in eviction defense in the Tenants' Rights Unit at New York Legal Assistance Group. This presentation will focus on a report I co-wrote with my former colleague, Sam Rabia, who is now a journalist at the city concerning the corporatization of New York City housing stock. So first, just to give a background, some context of Just Fix as an organization. Um, so Just Fix is a housing nonprofit that co-creates tech tools in support of the housing movement. So 
while we believe technology has the potential to strengthen and support existing work within the tenants' rights movement, we do not believe that technology is a solution. So we center our work on the advocate and user experience, and it's grounded in the belief that housing is a human right. So our approach to research and policy explores the systems and structures that impede access to equitable and livable housing. Just Fix believes data transparency proves to be a powerful tool affecting change. So in collaboration with our partners, we use data to support organizers and build support for the tenants' rights campaigns. Some of our tools include Who Owns What, um, which allows users to search any building or landlord name in the city of New York and obtain information concerning who owns the building, changes in number of rent-stabilized units, complaints and violations in a building, how many buildings are within the owner's portfolio, um, all by aggregating public source data, an excellent resource for research, um, for organizing, and for piercing the corporate veil. Another tool is a letter of complaint that generates a free letter that is sent to your landlord via certified mail with data obtained through Who Owns What, with a request for repairs, with the intention of improving housing conditions in users' apartments. And um, one last tool that I want to just share with you all is um, our rent history bot, where users can request their rent histories online and via text. So the our report was essentially inspired by a previous report written by Sam Rabia on the myth of the mom and pop landlord in New York. We wanted to delve deeply into the number of large landlords that were in fact corporation. So this initial report explored building registrations from the Housing Preservation Development or HPD across the city using who owns what to get a sense of networks of buildings within an owner's portfolio. Um, so oftentimes when we're talking about pro-tenant legislation, a uh, common narrative that you will hear is that, you know, we can't pass more robust tenants' rights to because, you know, of the small mom and pop, we have to protect them. Um, so we wanted to kind of like get a sense of who like how many there are actually in the city. So um, through um, Sam's research, um, he found that the typical owner in New York has an average of 21 properties with 893 units. Um, there was also some additional analysis of the rates of evictions with large property owners and the type of units that they actually control. So a report found that landlords with 20 or more buildings accounted for more than half of all evictions in the city and that large landlords control a majority of rent-stabilized apartments along with you know applying for the most major capital major capital improvements or MCIs which was often used as a strategy for obtaining increases building wide for rent stabilized apartments um, housing justice for all calls MCIs um, one of the several tactics that landlords exploit to raise rents and drive displacement because landlords can kind of pass off the cost of you know larger uh changes into the apartment onto the tenants um and what made this report really critical was that it countered a narrative that often pushed by large landlords that NYC is still a city of small landlords and that pro-tenant legislation unfairly harms the little guy. So, you know, it, this report opposed that narrative and actually made those numbers a bit more cogent. And here is just a visualization of the map of the average citywide portfolio size for each neighborhood in New York City with buildings registered with HPD. Um, you know, small family homes don't need to, that are owner occupied do not have to register with HPD. So that's not taken into account in this report. But you can see from this map, basically, like the entire island of Manhattan is owned by large landlords of 30 to 60 plus buildings. 
Okay, so for um, as an introduction for this study, um, this report explored the shift towards corporate ownership during a 20-year period. So mm -hmm. for our methodology, we first assessed a random sampling of 1,000 deeds across the city using NYC's data portal and ACRIS. Um, we then picked out keywords that would indicate corporate versus individual ownership. So for example, corp, LLC, trust. Um, once we confirmed this method was sound from some peer review, we applied this to the entire database of NYC deed transfers from 2003 to 2022. Um, and then for the entire database of deed transfers, we compared the number of properties that corporations bought with properties individuals purchased. Um, it's not uncommon for individual building owners to form their own LLC. Um, and it's usually as a means to um, sort of insulate themselves from personal liability. Um, so we excluded those transfers. So we eliminated any um, transfer that didn't actually represent a sale. So we removed any deed that had a nominal sale price listed. So you'll see that on the deed that it's only like $0, that sort of thing. So we eliminated those. Um, we also limited our analysis to the boroughs of Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx, because ACRIS does not hold financial records for the borough of Staten Island, as noted on their website, at least at this time. Um, so the data revealed a major shift following, you know, 2008, the Great Recession, um, while individuals were the predominant buyer of property for most of the 2000s, corporate acquisitions overtook individual purchases in 2011 and remain the dominant type of transaction to this day. Um, the data also, um, you know, includes uh, a corporation, when a corporation sold to another corporation or when an individual sold to another individual. But we also wanted to more clearly track when proper properties became corporatized. So we analyzed trends in property acquisitions specifically where the owner type switched. So when an owner sold to a corporation and vice versa. Um, so here is um, an initial um, visualization that was included in the um, uh, report. So while 76% of New York City households are situated in large multifamily buildings with three or more units, small family homes with less than three units make up about re the remaining 24% of households. In fact, small family homes represent 78% of residential buildings in the city, according to the New York City Department of City Planning. Um, but prior to 2008, individuals rather than corporations purchased more one to two unit residential homes, but immediately following um, the period of the Great Recession around 2008, um, corporations started outpacing individual purchasers and became and began dominating the market for small family homes. Um, and between 2011 and 2016, the rate at which one to two unit buildings became corporatized nearly doubled. Um, so moreover, the vast majority of rent-stabilized apartments um, are located in large buildings. Um, basically, the legal framework for rent-stabilizations, for those that are, um, you know, unfamiliar, um, it's essentially, an, like, when you think about how it's characterized kind of in the broader sense, is it's, all, it's an older building with six or more units. Um, there are some other exceptions with 421A and JFD1 tax exemptions that would include, you know, newer buildings, but essentially anything that's you know, built up until 1971 and there are larger buildings. Um, but for rent-stabilized properties, like with smaller housing types, corporations demonstrated their greatest purchasing power around 2014. 
Um, so the green line represents individual ownership, pink line is corporate ownership. Um, so I'll discuss a little bit about some of the socio-political touch points to hone in the trajectory of what we're seeing in this graph. So sort of facing the repercussions of predatory home lending schemes, you know, the United States fall into a period of an economic crisis in 2008. So while housing valuations rose consistently by 2005, the housing bubble is beginning to burst and prices plummeted to unprecedented lows. Um, you know, many American homeowners were exploited by piggyback loans and subprime mortgages. Um, and there was uh, a lot of experiences of foreclosure at unparalleled rates. And although there was some reform um, for the metrics used for loan approvals, um, you know, with mortgage lenders accepting only applicants that were likely to pay those loans back. Um, in 2008, New York City lost around over 13,000 family homes, which family homes in this um, is defined as one to two, one to four unit homes due to foreclosure, which impacted over 31,000 households throughout the crisis. So when a rental property is foreclosed upon, tenants residing there will often face eviction proceedings in housing court. Um, if they're not immediately brought to court, they may also just experience property neglect issues just because they don't know who to contact, there isn't anyone taking care of the property, or once the property is actually sold, constructive evictions, um, which are essentially when um, there are um, like repairs or renovations being made that make it so unlivable that, you know, people are kind of forced to leave on their own accord. Um, so even within the city of renters, there's a deep impact from this, this time. Um, and then also just like locally, this is under Michael Bloomberg's administration from 2002 to 2013. So, you know, the legacy of the Bloomberg era um, in housing is, you know, very much characterized by a ballooning number of people living in homeless shelters, the proliferation of 80-20 buildings to address the affordable housing crisis. So again, the 80-20 buildings are essentially where there's like mixed income where it's 80% pay market rate and 20% are subsidized in exchange for, um, you know, the developer's ability to kind of skirt certain zoning restrictions, things of that nature. Um, one of um, Bloomberg's also um, kind of one of his political priorities was to prioritize um, rezoning practices that incentivize the growth of commercial businesses. So we see like a big transformation in Williamsburg and Hudson Yards. Um, and, um, you know, Bloomberg's overall conservatism, especially with housing, was bolstered by, you know, um, New York State also um, with the Rent Guidelines Board setting rent increases that encourage tactics of deregulation based on high income, high rent, um, massive increases for individual apartment improvements for units, and then major capital, capital improvements, MCIs, for building-wide changes. Um, and the primary goal for landlords was to evict long-term tenants in favor of gentrifiers to deregulate their housing stock and obtain the 20% vacancy bonus to maximize their profits. And that fueled massive displacement and rapid gentrification. Um, and, uh, you know, going into Bill de Blasio's administration, which some have credited for more pro-tenant policies, um, and there have been some historic victories, um, you know, de Blasio has been credited with right to counsel within housing court, but provides legal representation for low-income New Yorkers facing eviction uh, and risk of homelessness. Um, but this is really a testament to the incredible work of organizers and tenant advocates that began in the Bronx. Um, you know, de Blasio also kind of has been credited with um, housing voucher reform and increases in the city FEP subsidy. Um, but again, that was a lot of advocacy from people on the ground. Um, but the big thing that happened in two, 2019 
is the Housing Stability Tenant Protection Act of 2019, which we're going to refer to as the HSTPA. Um, so that created some of the most robust protections for both rent stabilized and market rate tenants. It eliminated the vacancy bonuses. It prevented landlords from revoking preferential rent. So that's with the lifetime of the tenancy and not just the lease term um, and prohibited the use of the tenant blacklist, which really prevented a lot of people who had experiences with eviction in the past um, from obtaining housing. Um, so even people that like had vouchers that, um, you know, had uh, were able to rent other apartments were sometimes turned away illegally because of the tenant blacklist, um, among other historic reforms. You don't have to get into like all of the HSTPA. Um, but this was huge. Um, and this was, you know, like I said, uh, had advocates and organizers um, really um, were constantly engaged in the struggle for tenants' rights. And there was a progressive New York State Assembly that kind of heeded that call. Um, but corporations are still the dominant owner type even with this, um, and likely due to the tumult of caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, building acquisitions went down overall. So it's really difficult to evaluate the effect of HSTPA if they have any on the real estate market. Um, but we were also interested in looking at what smaller buildings, um, what happened with smaller buildings, especially because the HSTPA would hamper landlords from employing the same strategies for rent increases through deregulation. So it might, and we were curious to see if it would incentivize purchases of smaller homes that are not uh, that are not subject to regulation, where they can kind of set their own rents um, at market value. Um, so a lot of the next slides um, are going to be centered on smaller buildings. Um, so while 76% of New York City households are situated in large multifamily buildings with three or more units, small family homes with less than three units, like I said, make about 24% of households. So um, the vast majority of rent-stabilized apartments, um, yeah, are, are the vast majority of rent-stabilized apartments are located in larger buildings, like I said before. Um, and... Um, the for rent stabilized properties, um, like with the smaller housing types, corporations are still demonstrated as the 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 highest the corporations along with um the smaller buildings, um, corporations are um the leading buyers. Um, so here we're looking at one to two unit buildings from corporation to person, person to corporation, um, three to five unit buildings, and also um, rent stabilized units. Um, one second, my computer's freezing a little bit. Um, Okay. And then this one, how often do buildings change ownership type? So um, in 2005, they were essentially equal. And then it flips in 2014 with corporations buying nearly four times as many properties as individuals. Um, I think part of the novelty of this project is that we may be able to intuit that corporations backed by major purchasing power would be the predominant owner type for larger buildings. Um, and also just like in terms of our own lived experience as New Yorkers and thinking about like who owns your building, do you interface with a large um, a managing company, et cetera. Um, but I think one of the more interesting facts is that like it wasn't always the case and that the, there has been a fundamental shift within the market that and it became corporatized more over time. 
Again, while maybe it's to comprehend that the larger buildings in New York are owned by corporations, we want to explore what has happened to ownership in buildings with fewer units. So this graphic really illustrates the shift towards corporate ownership in almost every single zip code across the city. And as with gentrification generally, patterns of corporatization have not necessarily occurred evenly, but neighborhood by neighborhood, you know, changes that are echo, the changes within those neighborhoods echo larger trends in real estate speculation and have likely been exacerbated by pro-development policy shifts um, in the post-recession era. So in 2003, individuals represented the predominant type of multifamily property buyer in almost all neighborhoods in New York City, with the only exception being lower and upper Manhattan and a few areas in the outer borough. But by 2010, that dynamic flipped and corporations became the predominant buyer. That was especially true in rapidly gentrifying areas. So these neighborhoods include East and South Bronx, which some have referred to in many different publications as the real estate frontier or Sobro, you know, how they try to market different neighborhoods with like, you know, different names, as well as central Brooklyn neighborhoods that the urban displacement project identifies as epicenters of gentrification. So we're talking about Williamsburg, Crown Heights, and Bed-Stuy. Transit hubs often triggered corporate speculation as well. So I've often, um, when I worked in Queens, there was a lot of discussion about how Jamaica could be the next center for gentrification because of the transit options, like the Long Island Railroad, the F the J, the E, um, just the ability to get to JFK. There's also been a lot of discussion about potentially more gentrification occurring in East New York because of Broadway Junction. And politicians like Charles Barron have had made a major part of their platform centering the protection of affo the affordable housing stock in those areas. Lastly, um, I think there's might be two more slides, but um, we wanted to also kind of uh, ground some of our understanding of corporatization and evictions during COVID. So this graphic felt incredibly stark to us, and we took a map from the corporate buying from 2013 to 2018, and then the number of evictions by zip code during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's looks very similar. It looks almost like the, the same map, you know, a devastating unprecedented time of global pandemic exacerbated by housing loss. And it showcases corporations ability to very easily navigate the court system. And we'll kind of go into the consequences of what happens once building is corporatized. Um, so here is just another map of kind of what it looked year by year for individuals versus corporations in terms of ownership. And one of the biggest things is it just changes the cultural fabric of the building itself. So how tenants are able to request repairs, how they're able to pay rent, how they renew their lease, it may all become automated and rely entirely on online systems. So like that caters to a very specific, you know, market and a very specific tenant type. Um, you know, if you're used to talking to your super in the building, there's, you know, and now you have to make a request for repairs online, like that is definitely limiting in terms of like people who do not have access or ability. Um, there's also like language access questions, but, you know, tenants also have the right to, you know, pay rent however they choose, but owners often obfuscate those rights. So they might say that it has to be through the online portal, um, things of that nature. But yeah, these systems cater to the needs and ease of those tenants that will generate the most profit, so mostly gentrifiers. Corporations also mechanize evictions and evict tenants at a higher rate than individuals. So they often make use of in-house counsel um, or you know have a specific law firm that they use all the time where uh, they kind of can churn out these boilerplate 
petitions or send automated rent demand notices once that is triggered by a tenant's failure to pay on a specific date. And that can make tenants feel incredibly harassed and precarious in their housing overall. And I think it's really important to look at all of this holistically in terms of like affordability as a crisis in this city as well. You know, landlords are often talking about um, the issue of housing as an issue of scarcity, um, that there simply isn't enough housing available overall, while there are tens of thousands of vacant units currently. And the HSTPA may stem the tide of rapid deregulation of affordable housing, but new policy solutions to address the affordability crisis continue to entrench a system where housing is first and foremost a means of profit. And as our data analysis shows, corporate speculation of residential properties correlates with displacement. So new policy initiatives can more effectively curb displacement in the long term if they regulate who actually gets to own property and for what purpose, in addition to addressing the harm caused by corporate greed. So I think there needs to be, you know, a more radical look at examples outside of the U.S. You know, there has been a coalition of folks in New York that have gone to Vienna to look into social housing and, you know, something more more radical that gets at the root um, is probably um, necessary and needed. Um, and it's a very interesting time within the housing movement. Generally, there's been a lot of harnessing of tenant power with collective action, engagement with the struggle for tenant power generally, and especially under the current administration with Eric Adams, where there has been such a hostility against the tenant movement with the violent policy against the unhoused, rejection of housing voucher reform, and advocacy for increase on rent-stabilized housing. There, you know, on the state level, the fact that like there wasn't not enough energy and, you know, political will to pass good cause, which would have given added protection for tenants who are not in rent-stabilized housing and create caps or rent increases. Um, and those, you know, protections are very necessary, but they're in a lot of the dialogue and in the discussion about implementing this policy, a lot of carve-outs were discussed um, from the original policy to make it that, you know, landlords who only owned, you know, small buildings or a certain number of units would be exempt from these rent increases, again, with the idea of like protecting the smaller landlord. Um, so I think, you know, looking at the actual data and kind of problematizing and dismantling that argument is really necessary because this rhetoric to justify these actions are often tied to the idea of protecting those interests of small landlords who cannot keep up with the costs of operating and ultimately performing their obligations that they have as landlords under the law. So I think it's important to analyze the veracity of these claims and counter these narratives because the actual lived consequences of these choices deeply impact tenants and often the most marginalized among us. Um, I will end it there. Um, if there's any questions or comments, um, if you want to like reach out to me after this, um, if you have any questions about JustX generally, um, you can email hello at, if you have uh, questions about our tools, you can email support at, and then if you have any questions about my work or the report, you can, that's my personal email as well. Um, so I'll end it there. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.